0: And if you're here with us today and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now. They have Bibles and to just get their attention and wave to them and they'll get a Bible into your hands. It's always nice to not only hear the word of God, but to be able to follow along with your own eyes. And so uh, be sure and avail yourself of that. On Sunday mornings, we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And uh, we come now to John's Gospel, chapter 18. And uh, while uh, most of us are there now at that point, hold your place there and then also go to the left in your Bible to Mark chapter 14. We'll read a little bit from each chapter, John chapter 18 and Mark chapter 14, and then hold your places there during the study, too, as we'll reference from both uh, both passages. John chapter 18, we'll pick things up in verse 12. And then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and they bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now, it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Verse 19. Having been brought before Annas, the high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. And Jesus answered him, I spoke openly in the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I've said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? And Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? And then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And then now to Mark chapter 14. Verse 53. And they led Jesus away to the high priest and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders and the scribes. But Peter followed at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and he warmed himself at the himself at the fire. Now, the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But found none for many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. And then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands. And within three days, I will build another with made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. And again the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the richness of the passage that we are about to study. And we pray, Lord, that you would be very, very involved in our study of the word this morning. And we acknowledge that in this room, as is always the case, in any room where your word is opened up, there's life and death in the room. Eternities hang in the balance, Lord. And you know exactly what each one of us needs to hear today. You know why you have brought each one of us into this place. And so speak to us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit and in the power of your Holy Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Jesus has now fully entered into the day of his crucifixion and all the events of that day. He has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He has been betrayed by one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot. And the remaining 11 disciples have all scattered now and abandoned him. And he is taken from that Garden of Gethsemane to one of those religious leaders who had sent that Multitude with torches and clubs in order to arrest Jesus, a very, very high ranking official in uh, the Jewish religious system, uh, such as it was in that day, a man by the name of Annas. And on the morning of Jesus's crucifixion, he underwent two trials, one a religious trial at the hands of Annas and then later at the hands of Caiaphas, his son in law and the entire Sanhedrin. And then later in the morning, the second trial that he endured was a trial, a secular trial that he endured at the hands of the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. And this morning we want to take note of the religious trial that Jesus went through as Jesus was tried by religious men. In John chapter 18, we have that section of Jesus's religious trial that had to do with him being tried by a man by the name of Annas. Jesus was swept away from that garden of Gethsemane, taken into an extraordinarily wealthy section of Jerusalem where the fabulously wealthy Annas lived. He has made his money off of religion, and he has made an awful lot of money. Annas was the high priest of the Jewish religious system, again, such as it was in Jesus' day from the year 7 AD to 14 AD. Under the law of Moses, the high priest was to hold that position for the entirety of his life. That was only, he was only to end his tenure in that position with his death. But when Rome conquered Israel and occupied Israel, it did not like that kind of concentration of power in any one man. They liked to keep the regions that they dominated a little bit unsettled. It was easier to control things that way. And for one man to have that much authority and that much power for a lifetime, they felt it was a threat to their security Of of that nation. And they felt that about the high priest in Israel. And so every few years, in order to kind of keep things a little bit stirred up and a little bit off balance, they would open up the office of high priest to someone else. And it was usually given to the highest bidder. And while Annas could not continue to be the high priest endlessly during this Roman occupation, he did find a way to control the office without holding the title. He simply arranged for family members to gain the office, and then he would then control things through them. Following him as high priest would uh, be five sons, one grandson, and even a son-in-law. So, in other words, Annas kept a very powerful hold upon that office, and the reason that he did was because the money that could be made by the person that held that position was absolutely astronomical. We're talking about millions and millions and millions of dollars a year would funnel its way into the pockets and the family members of the person that held the position of high priest. And I'm not talking about that being adjusted for inflation over a period of 2,000 years. This fellow was making millions of dollars a year 2,000 years ago. It was astonishing money, astonishing wealth. And at the time of Jesus' arrest, Annas, his son-in-law Caiaphas, was technically the high priest. But at various times, as you're reading in the gospel accounts, it'll speak of Caiaphas as being the high priest. Sometimes it will speak of Annas as being the high priest for a couple of reasons. Number one, because he had been the high priest at one time. And then also because everyone knew he was the true power behind that office, despite all of the other appearances. And this is why Jesus was brought to Annas First, before he was brought to Caiaphas and brought to the Jewish Sanhedrin, Annas wants to assess the situation for himself. He wants to deal with Jesus personally in order that he might then uh, come to some recommendations that he can then offer to the current high priest, his son-in-law Caiaphas in the Sanhedrin, about how they ought to specifically proceed with what he perceived to be a troublemaker in this uh, Jesus of Nazareth. I think it's very important to understand, in order to understand what's happening here, very important to understand and to realize that Annas owned what were known in those days as the bazaars of Annas, as they are described by Josephus, the famous Jewish historian, located in the area of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. He ran a monopoly on the sale of animals for sacrifice to be offered at the temple. Under the law of Moses, Uh, Every man above a certain age, when he would make his way to Jerusalem in order to be a part of one of the three main feasts of the Jewish religious calendar, it was required that he would offer a sacrifice for himself or for his family. And so they would then come from literally all over the world. They bring an animal to the temple The priest would then expect inspect the animal to find uh, out to uh, in order to find any kind of spot or blemish in it, because then it would be rejected. But if it was without spot or without blemish, the priest would then offer that animal as a sacrifice to God on behalf of the worshiper. It would seem that after some time that someone thought. And it was probably a good thought at the time that we can make this a little bit easier for these pilgrims. We can make this a little more convenient rather than having them bring oxen and sheep and goats from Turkey and from Egypt and from Jordan and from all over the world to Jerusalem. We can just supply at a current cost Uh, one of those animals right here in Jerusalem where they can simply carry the money on the long journey and then buy an animal here closer to Jerusalem where it will be sacrificed. Well, so far, so good. But it wasn't long before this became very popular and the demand for that service became very great. And then it wasn't long before it became a thriving industry. And so why not offer the animals closer to the temple? I mean, it would be good for business. It would be good, uh, uh, convenient for the people. And then why not offer the animals for sale uh, on the temple grounds themselves? But there's a, a catch to this. In order to do that, they would have to get permission from the religious leaders And then the religious leaders realize that a lot of people are getting rich on this, so why shouldn't they get a cut of the action so they allow the selling of the animals on the temple grounds for a cut of the profit? And then soon they decide to themselves, why don't we just stop anyone from bringing an animal from home at all? Let's have the religious leaders inspect the animals being brought from home for some spot or blemish and then make sure they disqualify every animal that's brought from home as unsuitable and now force them to purchase one of these animals ...from the vendors and will make the vendors' animals pre-approved by the religious leaders for sacrifice. And then, now when there's no competition from animals brought from home, you have a monopoly on the sacrifice business. And now you charge whatever obscene price you want. And again, as I said, ultimately, the whole business was taken over by the high priest with millions of pilgrims coming to Jerusalem every year. Millions of dollars went into his family's personal fortune. Until what had begun as a convenience had turned into essentially religious theft. He was also in charge of the money changers who had been allowed to exchange money now up in the area of the temple that based upon the same kind of pattern. According to the law of Moses, every male above a certain age was required to give a half shekel when he came to Jerusalem for the upkeep of the temple. It was legitimate. A half shekel was a relatively small amount of money. And so a person was to give it, whether they were rich or poor, everyone was to give something toward the maintenance, maintaining of the temple and also for the maintaining of the life of the priests and others that gave their life to what was going on there. And so many Jews came to Jerusalem from all around the world, different currencies, Roman currency, Greek currency, Egyptian currency and so forth. And when they came to Jerusalem, they couldn't offer, in order to get a half shekel, you got to tr- uh, exchange that money from whatever Gentile currency into the Jewish currency. And in order to buy one of the sacrifices that you needed to offer, they're not going to take pagan money. So that also had to be offered. You had to purchase that with Jewish shekels. And so the money changers were there. In order to change your money for you now, the money, the service of the money changers probably also began as a convenience to the pilgrims. And it was good. Their booths were located somewhere in the city outside of the temple. But then soon the money changers are allowed into the temple grounds themselves by the religious leaders for a cut of the profit. And with each step in this progression, they raise the exchange rate. Until the time of Jesus, they charged half the value of a shekel to exchange it. It was, they were upping, it was costing you 50% of whatever amount you wanted to change. Be like going to another country, giving them a hundred dollars when you're uh, in in whatever country, and saying, "I'd like to have a hundred dollars of the of the this uh, currency," and they give you fifty dollars back, and you say, "What, have, what happened to the other fifty dollars?" And they said, "That's the exchange rate." Well, that could fry you. And when that kind of thing is done in the name of God, put a bad taste in people's mouths, that they were going there to worship God and they were getting ripped off in this way. But that's what was going on, even in the exchanging uh, of of money. And that's what these money changers were doing with the religious leaders and the family of the high priest getting a cut of the action. And according to the Jewish historian Josephus, these Booths were owned by the family of the high priest, ripping people off in the name of God, hiding behind God in order to do that. And twice in Jesus's public ministry, he denounced what was going on, both related to the animals and to the money. in what is known as Jesus clearing the temple and he made a, a whip made of cords and he went in. And he said, they have turned my father's house, which is to be a house of prayer, and they have made it into a house of merchandise, and they've turned it into a den of thieves. And everyone knew who Jesus was talking about. And word goes back to Annas that you've got a prophet who's got a large following now in Jerusalem who is describing the family and the man who is behind this entire system To be a thief. And very early on in Jesus' ministry, he had become the focus of Annas, the high priest. Not because of any false doctrine on his part or any kind of unholy living, but because his growing popularity, because of that growing popularity of Jesus, Annas knew that Jesus represented a tremendous threat to his money-making operation. And thus, the interrogation or the trial of Jesus by Annas is not a sincere effort to get to the truth at all. It's an attempt to find some grounds by which they might secure his death. You notice the interrogation in John chapter 18. Verse 19, Annas asked Jesus about his disciples. He's trying to get a feel for how many followers he's had. He's getting word that the numbers are big. And, and so if if he is successful in his plan and Jesus ends up crucified later in the day, what kind of a military force or military presence will be required in order to keep his disciples from disrupting the crucifixion that they had planned. He asked Jesus, verse 19, about his teaching and his doctrine in the hopes that Jesus would say something to him that they would be able to brand as being blasphemous against God, charge him with blasphemy, and then have grounds for executing him. And Jesus's Jesus' answer in verses 20 and 21, he said essentially to Annas, I spoke openly in terms of my doctrine. Everything I've said was out in the open, unlike this trial. And what he had been teaching was no secret. He had taught large crowds from one end of Israel to the other, not only at the temple in Jerusalem, but in synagogues from one end to the other of in Israel. Everyone knew what his position was. Everyone who had cared to listen understood what it was that he was saying. He had not made a secret of his views on anything. And Jesus tells Annas that in order for them to know what his doctrine was, even according to the law of Moses, That what he was to do was to collect his evidence from eyewitnesses, not from the person that's being accused himself. In other words, Jesus is letting them know that he knows that the purpose of this trial is not to investigate his teaching, but to seek his death. And with this rebuke of Jesus, he has silenced the hypocrisy of the high priest. And then in verse 22, one of the temple police officers there, seeing that Annas had been worsted or bested in this conversation that he's having with Jesus, he accuses Jesus of showing disrespect for the high priest, and he uh, smites him across the face with his palm. I never read that passage except that I think to myself, I hope. He became a follower of Jesus at some point in time in his life. Because for him, it will be more uncomfortable than even for the usual person. To stand before Jesus at that white throne and know that he had smitten his creator, his maker, the very son of God, across the face. Now, as I said it was Annas's responsibility to have found some kind of fault in Jesus so that he could then inform Caiaphas, his high priest son-in-law, and the Jewish religious court, the Sanhedrin, how he wanted them to proceed, what charges to focus on in seeking a reason for which to put Jesus to death. But he's got a problem. He's got a big problem. And it's the problem everyone faces who investigates Jesus dishonestly. He could not find a fault. Except that this man's life and his teaching was a threat to his financial empire. And so Anna sends Jesus off to Caiaphas and to the Sanhedrin to attempt to find guilt in him on their own. But he has failed completely. And then in Mark chapter 14... We have the description of the second phase of the religious trial as Jesus stands before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. Matthew tells us that it was the location of this uh, trial occurred, not in the area of the temple, as was required uh, by the Jews, but it occurred at the house of Caiaphas. Mark tells us in in verses 53 and 55 here that those who were present were not only Caiaphas, but the chief priests, the elders, the scribes. All of these men had gotten the memo to come in and to be a part of this before the city woke up and before people knew what was happening, as well as the members of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was kind of the supreme religious supreme court Of the nation of Israel it was made up of 70 Jewish men. They were the most powerful religious Jewish men, not only in Israel, but in the entire world. And this trial of the Sanhedrin was presided over by the high priest. Now, according to the oral traditions of the Jews, based upon the law of Moses, which would later be put in print and become known as the Mishnah, there were very specific rules that were to be followed concerning any trial that was brought before the Sanhedrin. All criminal cases were to be tried only during the daytime. They could not be conducted at night. It is still daybreak or before daybreak when all of this is happening. All trials had to be completed during the day. Criminal cases could not be tried during any of the great feasts, including Passover. This is happening during Passover. Only in a case where the verdict was not guilty could a case be finished on the day that the trial had begun. There could be no conviction of guilty made in one day. If a verdict was a verdict of death... It was required that at least one night elapse in order for all of the members of the Sanhedrin to have a chance to sleep on the verdict that they had come to that was going to cost somebody their life to make sure that they were doing the right thing. No decision of the Sanhedrin was valid unless it met in its own meeting place, which was the hall of hewn stone. In the temple precincts, all evidence had to be guaranteed by two witnesses. All witnesses were to be examined separately. They weren't to have contact with one another or hear one another's testimonies in order to corroborate and and advance a false story. Any false witness or perjury was punishable by death. Any trial was to begin with the presentation of all the evidence for the innocence of the accused the evidence for guilt was to present, be presented only after the case for his innocence and then each member of the sanhedrin was to give his verdict separately beginning from the youngest going to the eldest they violated every one of those laws in the most important trial of their life and in human history. That's how eager they were to silence His voice and His life and His teaching. And this trial of, by Jesus, of Jesus by the Jewish religious leaders is just a complete farce, mockery of justice. And the purpose of the trial was not to discover the facts and administer justice. The purpose of the trial was to find a cause for putting Jesus to death. They're looking for any reason that they can find to murder him. They've already come into the trial having reached a verdict before they ever heard the facts. I want you to notice their method for giving the appearance of giving Jesus a fair trial and yet ending up with their own predetermined verdict. Verse 55, they attempted to find legitimate testimony against Jesus in order to sentence Him to death, but they couldn't find any. And then having failed there, verse 59, they then sought false testimony and false witnesses. And apparently there were no shortage of them It is so tragic all the way through history to have this kind of man, this kind of woman who will take and sell someone out and and lie on behalf of religious leaders and religious systems in order to protect them when they shouldn't be protected at all. The problem that they ran into, even in that, was that they couldn't get the liars to agree upon anything. Until it became embarrassingly obvious that they had no case against Jesus and were trying to make one up. They became embarrassed that, that, that for themselves for what they were in the middle of in attempting to do. And then finally they found two witnesses who shared the same lie. Under the law of Moses, you could only establish a fact. By two eyewitnesses. And here's the lie uh, that they told there in verse 58. They said, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another without hands. Jesus never said that he would destroy the temple. He said, destroy this temple. Speaking of his body. And in three days, I will raise it up. And they're making it sound as if Jesus is a threat to that physical temple, as if he's going to tear it down. That's not what he was saying. He was no threat to the temple at all, but that they would destroy his body. They would take his life, but that they would not be successful because he would rise again on the third day. That's what he was saying. And they twisted the whole thing. And what was happening around Jesus At that very moment in that trial was a fulfillment of what he had said. It's much harder to establish a lie than it is to establish the truth. They would have found it much easier if they were trying to establish his innocence. They could have called thousands of people from the height and the depth and the breadth of Israel to testify to that. And in verse 60, and it's one of the great majestic pictures, one of many of Jesus in the Bible. As all of this folly is going on around him and he knows exactly what's happening. He just sits there silently. And the high priest confronted him concerning his silence. The high priest is talking. All of this nonsense is going on. The high priest realizes he has no case against this man. He understands the weakness of his position against Jesus. And Jesus is calm in the midst of it. And his silence in the midst of it drives him to desperation. And Jesus kept silent still in verse 61. I mean, here's the whole room filled with confusion And Jesus is the picture of peace. And God had said it would be so 714 years earlier through the prophet Isaiah. Concerning the Messiah, He was oppressed and He was afflicted. Yet He opened not His mouth. And He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So He opened not His mouth. And there's just a beautiful dignity about our Savior here. And then finally, and it's worth circling in a Bible, in verse 61. Finally, in the middle of all of this, Jesus is asked a question that is worthy of an answer. A question that he will always be faithful to answer when he is asked it. And the high priest finally rises up and he asks Jesus, are you the Messiah Are you the Son of God? And now they're getting to the thing that really bugged them. And Matthew gives us greater insight into all of this by telling us that as Jesus was silent, the high priest answered and said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And the law of Moses required that any Jew... Uh, testify and speak the truth when, when he was uh, required to do so and put under oath by the high priest. Now, if you're going to ask Jesus that question, you have to be willing to accept the truth of his answer. And you notice his answer there in verse 62. I am. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And he declares four things here of himself. He declared that, yes, he is the promised Messiah. That, yes, he is the Son of God, fully divine. He swears under oath, put under oath by the high priest, that he's nothing less than both of those things. And then he told them, that whether they chose to believe it or not, that they would one day see that it was true with their own eyes. And so they will. Jesus is in effect saying, you witness me now in the humiliation of this farce, but it won't be the last time you'll see me. One day you'll stand before me in the fullness of my authority and power as I sit upon the throne in heaven. And if you will not believe my words now, you will believe them then. Because you will become an eyewitness to that truth. Jesus was predicting his resurrection here. You're going to crucify me. And you think that all of your problems are going to be over when you crucify me. But I'm going to rise again on the third day and your problems, as it relates to me, have only just begun. Everyone in that room knew that if Jesus said yes to the question of Caiaphas, that he was signing his own death sentence with that crowd. But Jesus is in control of the entire situation, because now they will crucify Him. He knows He's going to be crucified. He came into the world to be crucified. But before the trial is over, He makes them understand the real reasons for which He is going to be crucified. And the real reason is His claim to be the Messiah and to be the Son of God. The reaction of the priest in verse 63 is he recognized that Jesus was ascribing deity to himself. And so he feigns indignation and he tears his clothes, which again was a violation of the law of Moses. A high priest was to listen to a trial dispassionately, not to give any indication that he cared one way or another about how the case would end up being in terms of the verdict. All he was to care about was that justice on the basis of God's Word would be established. And here he is. He declares Jesus guilty of blasphemy, calls for a vote. They condemn Jesus as guilty and worthy of death. And then they begin to spit on Jesus. And they begin to beat Him. And they begin to blaspheme Him, just as Isaiah said would be true of Him. This is not the Romans. This is not Pontius Pilate. They'll beat him to a pulp later. These are religious men. This is the Sanhedrin. This is young and old, dark hair, gray hair, to a man, leaping to their place, putting a bag over his head, and then proceeding to pummel him where he can't see the punches are coming from whatever direction. They spit on him, which is still the greatest insult in the world that you can do to a human being. And then they mock his claims to be divine by saying, prophesy, who is it that has just hit you across the face, or tell us who it is that's just about to hit you across the face. By the time they're done with him, he's covered with their spit, and his face is a bloodied mess, all for telling them the truth about himself. If you sit here this morning and you have not yet trusted in Jesus for your salvation and for the forgiveness of your sins, there's one great lesson from this 30 minutes of Bible study that I've just given you for you, and it's this. Never, ever, 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 ever reject Jesus based upon the opinions of other people. Because things are rarely what they seem. Annas and Caiaphas rejected Christ because they wanted to be rid of him because his life and his teaching were a threat to their wealth and power but they gave the appearance that their rejection was based upon the scriptures and a zeal for god those who are who reject christ are rarely Honest about their true reasons why. Jesus said that all rejection of Him and His gospel in this world is based in some darkness in the human life. It is always based on some moral perversity within that human being what sin do they hold dear that christ has denounced what evil do they love what moral perversity do they love some reject him because jesus and his message is an affront to their pride in assessing them to be a sinner like everyone else and in need of salvation, or in declaring there is but one way by which a human being might be saved, and it's an affront to them that God would declare there is but one way, declare the way by which a person might be saved, and gives no consideration to what they think is wise on that issue, because they know nothing about the issue but it upsets their pride and their arrogance. Others still reject him and bitterly oppose him because he's a threat to their religious system. And they love religion more than truth. And they love their religion more than even God. But they all have one thing in common. They will always. Try to make it look. Like they've given Jesus a fair trial. When they haven't. And God knows it. Have you rejected Jesus. Under the influence of some teacher. Some professor. You don't know half the story. Under the influence of some family member, some grandparent, some parent, some aunt, some uncle, under the influence of some friend, under the influence of some book or some author, even under the influence of some religious leader, I tell you, It is vitally important that you give his life and his teaching a trial of your own. And then that you make it a fair trial. And how will you know that you've given him a fair trial? You'll know when at the end of your examination you conclude him to be the Christ and the son of God and then you make him your personal savior and Lord you see the simple fact is that each of us is on trial as we make our decision over what we do with him And if we choose to reject him, it is never a reflection on him, but only upon ourselves, just as was the case with these Jewish religious leaders. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. And if you will but repent and turn from your own self-will and your sin and put your faith In Jesus Christ as your Savior today, God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit will come into your life and you will be born again and begin a personal relationship with God. Your sins cleansed. The confidence of heaven at the end of this life and then knowing God personally all of this life and the life to come. Whatever you do, Do not make someone else's conclusion concerning Christ your own. Make your own decision related to Him. And if you'd like to decide... To make Him your Lord and Savior today, immediately after the service, there are going to be men and women up in front with a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them. And they'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship today. You may say, I don't need to hear any more. I'm convinced. I see my own heart, my own mind. I see all that I am wrapped up in these religious leaders. I see all of Christ I need to see. To love Him and believe in Him. I want to believe in Him today. And you can do that today. But there may be others of us in the room today, and legitimately so, where you say, I've never been in a church before. Or it's been an awfully long time. And to be honest with you, I know very little about Christ. I haven't examined Him at all. And I understand what you're saying here today, but I also want to examine him and make that decision as a result of that examination. These same men and women up in front after the service will have Bibles up here and will be happy to give you a free Bible so that you can then turn to the Gospels and begin to read concerning Jesus's life and see if you can find any fault and that one and you won't and every honest seeker comes to put their faith in him God is not afraid of any conclusion that anyone would come to about his son who comes to that conclusion from the scriptures God understands your desire to know more and he will open your heart and your eyes up to the truth about his son and then bring you into his family But that Bible awaits you this morning up in front to begin that investigation. Let's stand together and we'll pray.